Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You may be seated. As you're seated, let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful that we can gather together. We are so grateful that you have given us your word. We are so grateful that you have poured out your spirit upon us. And we ask you as we interact with this text today, as we dive into what Paul the Apostle is saying to the church in Corinth and indeed to us this morning, we ask you that you'd strengthen us, fill us with courage, fill us with hope, empower us to live lives that glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, my name is Brett, and I'm part of the team here, and it is my joy to be opening God's Word with you today in 1 Corinthians. Uh, looking forward to, to seeing what we have here in this text. I'm getting straight into it, and so if you are one of those people who love points, here they are for you. If you don't, you know, tune out for 20 seconds. You okay? It's not going to get any funnier than that. I'm just telling you right now. So, Christ crucified human weakness, and the Spirit's power. That's what we're going to look at today. Christ crucified, human weakness, and the Spirit's power. Let's look at Christ crucified. You just heard it read. Let me read it for you one more time. Verses 1 and 2 says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come to proclaim to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. A lofty speech, certain kinds of wisdom, they were part of the spirit of the age in first century Corinth, where Paul is writing this letter. Paul knew that. Having a leader who shows up in your city to display power and knowledge and wisdom and lofty, superior speech, that's what they expected. And Paul says, that's not how I came to you. He knew that he was called to go into the world and make disciples of Jesus, not buy into the world and become a disciple of their culture. He knew that he was called to go into the world to make disciples of Jesus, not to buy into the world and become a disciple of their culture. So when he proclaimed the gospel to them, he refused to do it on their pre-existing expected, uh, terms that they expected it to come. He, he didn't do it that way. He wouldn't do it that way. Lest the cross be emptied of its power. He's very concerned about this. See, when you listen to Paul preach, what you came away with was not how wonderful he was, but how good the gospel is. When you listen to Paul preach, you didn't come away going like, man, he's so eloquent. You say, God is so good. And he wanted to make sure that was the basis that they had received the gospel in and that it was the basis that they were living with. He didn't show up in Corinth to distinguish himself. 
He showed up in Corinth to preach Jesus and him crucified. He didn't show up with impressive words. He showed up with Christ crucified. He didn't arrive in Corinth to cater to their worldview. He arrived in Corinth with only the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he desired to flip their worldview on its head. Identifying with Jesus means it does not just shape what he preaches, it shapes how he preaches it. That's what he's saying. Verse 2 says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, I regard nothing to be of primary importance except Jesus Christ, the crucified one. Nothing. Nothing else is on that level. This is a summary statement of sorts that he's making here. Later in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, which we're going to get to in about a year and a half at this pace, Paul unpacks what he's saying a little more. This is a summary statement, but he's, he's going to unpack it further through the rest of the book. In verse 3 of chapter 15, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Paul says, this is my primary message. This is the message of first importance. This good news of the gospel that he passed on to them, it's the same good news of the gospel that he had himself received. It's a message that he's received. He's passing it on. Paul is not an innovator. Sometimes we think too highly of innovation. If you innovate too much, you become a heretic. I just want to throw that out there. We think a little too highly at times of our theological innovation. Paul goes, I'm just telling you what I received. This is a message or a creed, kind of a, the essence of what Jesus had done for the world. It was something that the early church was talking about. This is him now as a man who has encountered Jesus. It's Paul being faithful to pass along the message that has absolutely transformed his life. That's what he's doing. Again, here it is. First, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Second, that he was buried. Third, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And fourth, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And so we know that the content of the gospel that Paul has arrived to proclaim, we know that it's that Christ died, that Christ was buried, that Christ was raised, and that Christ appeared to them alive. That's the content of his message. And I want you to notice something here, okay? When Paul wanted to tell them about the gospel, he didn't just give them some doctrinal principles to memorize. Okay, I'm not down on doctrinal principles. Very important. But I want you to see this. When he's reminding them of the good news that they have received, he lays out four key elements of Jesus' life. In effect, and this is what I want you to take away from this, in effect, I want you to see that being part of the people of God, being a follower of Jesus, being part of the church, means that you are part of a different story. And that different story revolves around the life and person of Jesus Christ. 
The new story that he had arrived in Corinth to tell them and that he is writing back to remind them about, the new story that they have lived into, starts with God before the creation of the world. It ends with God remaking the whole world in an eternal new creation. But the center of the story, the high point, the crescendo that we reach in all the scriptures is the incarnation and the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension and the lordship and the rule and reign of Jesus Christ over all things. That's what he's saying. It's what he is summarizing as an authoritative worldview or an authoritative story when he says in verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Listen, he's saying to them, the only story that I will orient my life around is the story of Jesus Christ. Crucified, dead, buried, risen, reigning, ruling as Lord of all. This new story that they have lived into changes absolutely everything but what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to live. There's a a man named Alistair McIntyre who in the early 80s wrote a book, and this is one of my favorite quotes. He says, I can only answer the question of what I am to do if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part of. I can only answer the question of what do I do if I can first answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part See, when Paul says he has decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified, he is reminding them of the key story that they have been adopted as children of God through the work of Jesus. This is the controlling center of all of their ethics. It's the answer to all of the questions that they are asking him. We are in a bit of a series of letters that are going back and forth between the Corinthian church and Paul the apostle who planted the church and they're writing letters back and forth. They're asking him questions. And when you study 1 Corinthians, you realize that all of the questions they are asking have one answer. It's the gospel of Jesus. Andy Nastali, who's written a commentary on 1 Corinthians, said the gospel solves every issue Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians because the gospel and its presuppositions and consequences is decisive for every issue regarding how Christians should live. I want you to hear it again. He says the gospel solves every issue Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians because the gospel is decisive for every issue regarding how Christians should live. So you say, how are we supposed to live in Vancouver in 2021? What story do you find yourself a part of? And who's at the center of that story? How do I raise my family? How do I live in singleness through this season of my life? How do I go through higher education? How do I be a 13-year-old high school student? How do I exist in the Vancouver School Board as a teacher? How do I work in a hospital where we see euthanasia on a regular basis? How do I work in my marketing firm where we're taking advantage of people and we've hacked into their system to trigger them to become addicted to certain kinds of media? 
How do I do that? How do I live as a Christian in 2021 in the city of Vancouver? What story do you find yourself a part of? And who is the center of that story? That is the big overarching answer to all the questions that we ask. Now, if it was simple, 1 Corinthians wouldn't be as long as it is. Paul's insisting that the church of God in Corinth be careful not to drift into another story. He says, the only story I will live by is the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ and who I am in light of what he has done. It's the only story he's going to live by. See, to tell the story of the gospel in our lives is to invite people into it. It is. We invite people to find their place in the story of Jesus. Richard Bauckham said to accept the authority of this story is to enter into it and to inhabit it. It is to live in the world as the world is portrayed in this story, the story of Jesus. That's how we live. And that's what Paul's doing when he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come preaching to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says there's only one story that he's living by. And the center of the story and the narrative of what is true in this world is and always will be Jesus. It's the center. And why is Paul so insistent on this in the introduction of his letter? Why? Why is he coming back to it? I already took you to chapter 15. Thank God you'll totally forget everything I already said about chapter 15 by the time we get there. I'll be able to just say the same thing. Because it's the same thing I've been saying since the day I started preaching. Jesus is the center of the story that we live in. Like you don't come here for novel things. Honestly, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're here, you're probably here because you need a reminder of what you already believe. I forget so quick. I forget so quick. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you've come here because you are intrigued by the way other people are living and how it seems to be that there is a God-man, Jesus Christ, at the center of their life. And you don't understand how it works. Welcome. We're trying to work it out. Why is he so insistent on this? Paul planted this church in the city of Corinth. He stayed there for a couple of years making disciples. He's writing the letter probably four years or so after that from a different city. Because it seems like some of the folks in Corinth have had a problem with keeping Jesus at the center. They've they've drifted. Anytime you start to live by another story other than the story of the gospel of Jesus, anytime another ideology starts to infiltrate your heart and mind, you're going to dethrone Jesus and enthrone something else. When you dethrone Jesus and you enthrone another story or ideology, it's what the Bible calls idolatry. means you're living according to some other authoritative story in your life. See, don't forget, we live in contested space. There is a battle for your affections. There is a battle for your attention. There is a battle for your allegiance. That's the world we live in. We need to be aware that there are other competing stories in the city of Vancouver. 
We need to be reminded why it's essential that we are living into the story of the gospel as the defining story of our lives. There are lots of stories that we live into or we can live into. There's a book written by Steve Wilkins and Mark Sanford. They list a number of these, I think eight of them. Individualism. The story that I am the center of the universe. Consumerism. The story that I am what I own. Nationalism. The story that our national interests or your national interests, perhaps wherever you have citizenship, that the survival of your nation is what guides your thinking. You could put the political story in there. That when my party is in power, I feel good about my life. But when my party is not in power, I wonder if God has abandoned us because don't you know that Jesus would vote like me? It's nationalism. Repent. <laughs> you want, I get asked about this regularly, way more often than I, like enough that I know it's a problem, okay? What should we do? Like, what do you think politically? Here's my first answer. Jesus is Lord. That's my, that's my politics, okay? I have political opinions, I just don't think they should be elevated above my Christianity. You can tell I'm suppressing something right now. Isn't it good? Like you just, this, is, this is the power of the Holy Spirit at work. You are evidencing what, what the scripture later is going to call the de demonstration of the Spirit's power. And a growth in Christ-likeness. Fourth one, I think. <laughs> Moral relativism. The story that we can't know what is universally good that we can't know. Scientific naturalism, that's the story that all that matters is matter. New age, it's the story that we are and can become gods. Vancouver's very spiritual. Postmodern tribalism, it's the story that all that matters is what my little group thinks. This is rampant as an ideological story that has been elevated and lived into. Postmodern tribalism. All that matters is the truth my little group says is true. So we break into little subgroups on all the different issues around us and we go, you know what matters? That you agree with me because I'm right. You disagree with me? I don't care about you anymore. Like Sam preached a number of weeks ago, we're supposed to be united in Christ. <laughs> What's dividing us? Tribalism. The eighth one, salvation by therapy. Okay, I'm an advocate of counseling. I think therapy's great. But as an overarching narrative or story that we live by, it's the story that I can come to my full human potential by inner exploration. No, you can come to your full human potential by surrendering your heart to Jesus. All right, I like therapy. I can recommend it for a few of you if you'd like. I'm sure if we took 10 minutes together, we could fill a whiteboard with a whole bunch of other stories that we see. And what we do is we trace the gospels that are being proclaimed around us. What are the, the things that are good news to the citizens of Vancouver who don't yet follow Jesus? What are the things that they preach as their gospel? We take that, we, we trace that, 
and find the authoritative story under which that gospel lives. See, there are other gospels out there. And, and so, I mean, maybe you can do this as a community group. Just make a list of those gospels, trace back their authoritative stories, and, and I think you'll see what I mean. If you end up doing this, take it one step further then and ask yourself how the true gospel of Jesus tells a better story than that. And then send me the list, because I always need resources. I think it'd be a great exercise for you to do. So that's what Paul's doing here. He's reminding them of the better story that they have been invited into. It's the controlling center of the story that he's talking about, Christ crucified. He refuses to center his life, orient his life, on anything other than Christ crucified. So that's Christ crucified, first point. The second point, human weakness. Christ crucified, how about human weakness? Verse 3 says, And I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. Paul says, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. See, in verse 1, he said he doesn't preach the gospel with a posture of power and lofty speech and wisdom. He says he came to them in weakness and fear and trembling. Right? For Paul, the story of Christ crucified doesn't just inform what he preaches, it informs how he preaches and how he carries himself. And he doesn't ride into Corinth on the back of some big white stallion with gleaming armor and some guy on his left just blowing the trumpet saying, hear ye, hear ye, he's got something to say, and some other person on his right waving a triumphant Christian flag. He limps into town as a broken man. He's been whipped, he's been beaten, he's been stoned, he's been shipwrecked. And in his weaknesses, he is visibly afflicted in some way. Acts chapter 18, when he arrives in Corinth, Acts tells us the historical narrative of when he arrives in Corinth and how he was feeling and what was going on. In Acts chapter 18, it tells us he's literally afraid that he's going to get beaten or something else in Corinth as well takes like a, a vision or a dream in the middle of the night from Jesus speaking to him, telling him, it's okay, stay here. Got work for you to do here. He was afraid. He was afraid in the same way that some of you are afraid because you've shared the gospel with people that you love and they rejected it. You might not have been physically beaten, but you're a little shy. That's why I pray for courage, because I'm the same as you. When I share the gospel of Jesus with somebody I love and they reject it, in a certain way it feels like they're rejecting me. And I've got to be aware of the fact that's not true. It's not true. But I can't let that kind of keep me and constrain me. I have to let that empower me that there are people who will receive it. And when that happens, we all rejoice. Paul was afraid. Plus, he's not fitting into any of the pre-existing categories that the Corinthians would have had for some kind of heroic herald of the good news from a foreign land, right? He doesn't fit that category. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And out of that humble posture, what does he say to them when he arrives in Corinth? He says, God loves you. You're a sinner. Jesus died for your salvation so that you could become a saint. 
Jesus rose for your new life. He says, if you will repent of your sin, if you will trust God that he has made a way for you to be forgiven, if you will reorder your life around the centrality of Jesus, you will be saved. He's reminding them that they have already received the gospel of Jesus, not because he came to them in strength and pomp and grandeur. No, he's reminding them that both he and they are weak and needy and that Jesus is mighty to save. That's his message. That's his posture. A few months before we moved from Alberta to Vancouver ten and a half years ago, a few months before we moved, um, we were, I was at a worship and prayer event. I was standing next to a guy that I'd, I'd known for quite a while. He actually had known Allison since she was a little kid. And uh, he started a bunch of businesses, very successful guy. And standing next to him as we're worshiping and praying. And he's a guy that I'd gotten some advice from before when I was in business. And I was standing there, and he was standing here, and we were looking at the stage together and, and worshiping. And I leaned over to him, and I said, Hey, Allison and I are going to move our family to Vancouver. We're going to start a new church. And he kind of looked at me and nodded, and he kept worshiping. Then with a bit of a pregnant pause, he turned to me as though he was about to deposit some godly word of wisdom, some life-changing advice was about to come from him, and he looked at me, and he said, never let them see you weak. As a leader, never let them see you weak. And he turned back, and he kept worshiping, and I stood there. I thought to myself, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I thought, I'm going to do the exact opposite of that. Because I am weak. Why would we try and posture in any other way? Like, I get what he's saying. He's just totally wrong. If you keep flipping your Bible to the right, you get to 2 Corinthians. Again, this letter is going back and forth. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul, same guy, writing to the same church in the same conversation back and forth. Chapter 12, verse 8, he's talking about how he's had some amazing spiritual revelations and in order to keep him humble, he's received what he called a thorn in the flesh. It says in verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The businessman at the prayer meeting might have known a lot about success in a worldly sense, but as soon as he spoke this word of wisdom to me, I knew he had been discipled more by the spirit of the age than by the scriptures. Because it's foundationally untrue. The difference is if I'm self-reliant, I'll never let you see me weak. Because I'll think, that you want me as your pastor to be that superhero the Corinthians were looking for. 
But if I'm reliant on the Spirit, I'm going to get up here and I'm going to talk about being depressed. I'm going to talk about anxiousness. I'm going to talk about how the first few years of marriage were rough. Talk about how I'm still rough to deal with. Come on. Don't hide your weaknesses. When you are weak, then you are strong. In your weakness, God's strength is made manifest. I want people to see God's strength. Because guess what? One day, hopefully a very, very, very long time from now, we're going to be gone. And you're not going to be able to be strong for the people around you all the time. You're going to need to appoint them to the reality that God's strength has made, been made perfect in your weaknesses. So you can't hide them. You can't hide your weaknesses from people and think that that's the godly way to handle this. So the problem, part of the problem with the church in Corinth is that they had heard advice like this before, just like you have. Like we've been tempted to conceal our weaknesses. It's, it's pretty natural. We want people to think we're strong and we want our leaders to be strong. That's the problem in Corinth. They loved the heroes. And it's really clear in the scriptures that Paul, the apostle, he does not fill the role of hero very well. Heroes are not weak. Heroes are triumphant. What if the idea of a hero is just really unbiblical? Unless your hero is Jesus. That whole way of thinking is actually why the gospel is so offensive to them. It says in, in chapter 1, back in chapter 1, verse 22, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. Right? The crucified Christ that Paul is preaching was a scandal to the Corinthian Jew because they couldn't conceive of a Christ who would die in weakness and who was anything but powerful. See, the crucified Christ that Paul was preaching is madness to the Corinthian Greek because they couldn't conceive of a world where something as embarrassing and shameful as crucifixion would somehow lead to salvation. If the Corinthians were looking for a hero on a white stallion, Paul's not their guy. If they're looking for a guy who has had his life shaped by the gospel that he preaches, who knows that God's strength is made perfect in weakness, then Paul, he's the guy you're looking for. When you're looking for a mentor, that's your guy. In fact, in his letters, Paul makes a point to glory in his weaknesses. Not because he loves injuries or illnesses themselves, but because he knows that whatever weaknesses or fears or failings he has, that they only serve to shine a light on the strength of God. Some of you feel weak, and you wonder if God could use you in your weaknesses. Let me tell you, not only will he use you in spite of your weaknesses, he will use you because of your weaknesses. He'll use you because of your weaknesses in order that the crucified Christ will be seen shining through that human weakness you have that displays the true strength of God. When God's power shines through your weakness, it's a little more attractive than you just thinking you're perfect all the time. And I would say, honestly, God's strength has only ever flowed through broken and weak people. <laughs> broken and weak people who are more committed to displaying God's glory than their own. 
Christ crucified, human weakness. Third, Spirit's power. We looked at Christ crucified, we looked at human weakness. Third, let's look at the Spirit's power. I'm going to read the whole text again. And I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Right? When Paul says that his speech and message were not in plausible words of wisdom, it is not that he was not persuasive in his conversations and in his preaching. It's that he is rejecting a certain kind of very centered, human-centered wisdom and persuasion in favor of the power of God. It's not like you read this and go, well, Paul then probably wasn't ever trying to persuade anybody, so we should all just sit back and really be nice and not say anything that we think. Wrong! Paul's forceful with his message, but he's not depending on his own force of his personality to do so. That would be plausible words of wisdom. And he says, that's not how I came to you. And my speech, it says in verse four, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but rather, he's saying, my speech and my message were in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Again, think of the story that he lives in. His worldview is Christ crucified. He has embraced his human, his human weakness. Think about this. Which means now that God's strength is being made manifest through him. Okay? And now he says his speech and his message are understood through the demonstration of the Spirit's power. See, in verse 4, when it says, and of the Spirit and of power, it's actually a, a strange wordplay. It's a literary device saying the same thing twice. What it's really saying is that it's in the demonstration of the Spirit's power. In demonstration of the Spirit's power. What is the demonstration of the Spirit's power? Okay? As much as I would love, love, to launch into a conversation around signs and wonders and miracles and the gifts of the Spirit, which we are, by the way, going to spend ample time doing later on in this letter. As much as I'd love to do that, when Paul's talking about the demonstration of the Spirit's power here in the text, he's talking about the Spirit's power and how it was evident in and through their response to preaching Christ crucified. That's context of talking about the Spirit's power. Okay, remember the context. Go back to verse 17 of chapter 1 with me. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Verse 18. For the Word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Verse 2 of chapter 2 says, so I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm all about the gifts of the Spirit. I'm about asking for miracles and healing and prophecy. But the demonstration of the Spirit's power among us is when one more person believes the gospel, repents of sin, and receives eternal life. That's what this is talking about. The gospel of Jesus does not make bad people good. Okay? The gospel of Jesus makes dead people alive. That's the Spirit's power at work. 
That is the demonstration of the Spirit's power. There is no greater miracle, there is no greater gift than when someone who is dead in their sin and trespasses is born again, resurrected from the dead, as it were, and when they come alive to receive eternal life in Christ. That is a manifestation of the Spirit's power at work. The point of this text is that it does not come through plausible words of wisdom. What are the plausible words of wisdom in our life? I think about all the crazy schemes we come up with apart from just sharing the simplicity of Christ crucified in our own weakness. (laughs) We have strategies and schemes and plans and things that we're going to do that really amount to plausible words of wisdom. The only reason we come up with other ways to share the gospel and to introduce people to Jesus Uh, all these other plausible words of wisdom that we perhaps are tempted to come up with is that we don't functionally believe in the Spirit's power to take the message of Christ crucified and apply it to that person's heart. We have really strong self-reliance and in some ways really low spirit dependence. Plausible words of wisdom is self-reliance. And that's the problem that Paul has here in the text. He's not going to come to them with plausible words of wisdom. That Self-reliance is what he's fighting against. The spirit dependence is what he's trying to elevate. We need to exchange those. Self-reliance goes down. Spirit dependence goes up. Live into the story of Christ crucified. Own your human weakness. You'll see the manifestation of the spirit's power, the demonstration of the spirit's power. See, our message is that God loves you. Jesus' death on the cross means you can be forgiven. And you can tell this is true because when you say that to someone, you can sense the Spirit's power with you. That's it. That's our message. You're going to spend the rest of your life working out the implications of what that is. But that's it. That's the whole deal. It's about a life centered on Christ crucified. It's about embracing your human weakness so that God's strength might be made manifest among us. It's about understanding the Spirit's power at work in the way that we have all come to salvation. And then you say, to what end? What's the goal here? Verse 5, so that. So that. Verse 5 says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He's saying so that your faith might not rest in human wisdom, but in the power of God. (laughs) All I want for you today, all I want for us today, is that we leave here trusting God more than we did when we walked in. That's it. Honestly, I'm so simple-minded. I can't give you more than that out of this text. I think to give you more than that out of this text would be actually to defeat the purpose of the text itself. I don't want plausible words. I just want you to trust God. I want to trust God more in my life. I want the areas where I'm not trusting him to become areas where I can functionally trust him. That's what I want. So that my faith might not rest in human wisdom, but in the power of God. That's what I want. I want us to come to the clear and present truth that our faith does not rest in human wisdom, but in the power of God. That's it. All I want for us as a church is that we have a right estimation of ourselves, a right estimation of God, and by that I mean that we would not feel too terribly self-important. 
but that we'd realize that because of Jesus and him crucified, we've got very important work to do in this world.